0: New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed the Adult Survivors Act into law this week, which will give adults who are victims of sexual harassment and abuse the opportunity to face their alleged abusers in civil court. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt.
1: Like the Child Victims Act approved in 2019, the measure opens a one-year window of opportunity for survivors of sexual harassment and abuse who are past the statute of limitations to bring their case to court. Governor Hochul, in a bill signing ceremony with survivors and legislative sponsors, says New Yorkers have waited long enough. Today is a good day. Today is a righteous day because it is a victory for justice and it is long overdue. Three years ago, the statute of limitations in New York for filing a civil lawsuit in a rape case was extended to 20 years, but people who were abused before then did not have any legal recourse until now. The measure passed unanimously twice in the state Senate. Sponsor Brad Hoylman says the law extends to those who suffered abuse and harassment from famous figures like the highly publicized Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein cases to those who suffered at the hands of a close family member. To the predators who for decades have benefited from New York's prohibitively short statute of limitations, you know who you are. The Adult Survivors Act will bring you to justice and make New York a safer place for all of us. The state assembly was the final holdout where some members were said to have had concerns. The assembly approved the measure on Monday. Assembly sponsor Linda Rosenthal says it should not have been so hard to pass the measure. After fighting off their attackers and fighting to heal, they should not have had to fight so hard to convince the legislature to believe them. Rosenthal credits survivors for pressing the issue. Marissa Hochstetter is among over 230 women who have reported abuse by former Columbia University gynecologist and fertility specialist Robert Haddon. She says at a time when the Supreme Court is expected to strike down the abortion rights decision Roe v. Wade, passing the Adult Survivors Act is more important than ever. At a time when... Women's bodily autonomy, particularly, is under attack. I think it says a lot about the values of New York to be a leader in survivors' rights.
2: Drew Dixon, who has
1: reported sexual abuse by hip-hop music mogul Russell Simmons, calls the new law life-changing. Because when you're raped, a part of you disappears. When you're sexually assaulted or harassed, your entire life becomes a crime scene in which you cower for the rest of your days. The practice of living in a world that doesn't acknowledge your pain is toxic. Simmons denies the charges. The one-year window for filing court cases is expected to begin in November. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, you had a conversation this week with who? Andrew Giuliani, son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, former personal attorney for former President Donald Trump's son. He is running for governor in New York. And the interesting question that you opened with is... Is the name Giuliani helpful or hurtful? He, of course, said it was helpful.
3: Well, of course. What do you expect him to say? He is a guy who is the son of one of the most despised individuals in our politics, Rudy Giuliani. He speaks well, Andrew Giuliani. He knows what he's doing. Whether or not he has a chance to take over his father's position in terms of the way in which we respect our politicians is anybody's business. I don't think so. I treated him with great courtesy when we had our conversation because I think it's important that we do. Nevertheless, I'm not impressed. Yeah,
0: well, when it came to the Buffalo mass shooting and the latest shooting in Texas, he said what we need to talk about is the death penalty and treating mental health, but nowhere did he acknowledge the need for gun control.
3: You know, David, there are an awful lot of people who agree with him, (laughs) an awful lot of people who think that there ought to be a death penalty for some of the things that we have seen. I am not one of them, but I'll tell you now, the idea that good, wonderful children are being slaughtered and that there is no way out of it other than to say, "Okay, we'll just have to live with this. It's not good. And I think there are an awful lot of Americans who would like to see the death penalty come back. To me, it's too risky. But there are those people who really believe it. Yeah.
0: Well, the governor, Kathy Hochul, this week suggested, you know, after you know we see these mass shootings, who are the primary people who do this? Young, white males, often teenagers. The last two are 18. And the governor says, why don't we, to start, raise the age for when you can have a gun to 21?
3: I'm all for it. I think we have too many guns. I think they proliferate. They're all over the place. You know, the idea that anybody can get one, anybody can use one, to me is ridiculous. And we really do have to re-examine how easy it is to get a gun and to use it.
0: Well, let's look at the new lieutenant
3: governor of New York, Antonio
0: Delgado. He's the first lieutenant governor with Latino roots in New York. He, of course, was a congressman in New York's 19th District. And because of the redistricting, it seems like he took his
3: opportunity because maybe he wouldn't win in that district anymore. As the old saying goes, by Plunkett of Tammany Hall, I seen my opportunities and I took them. You know, one of the things that can happen in a case like this is that if people do that, they take the easy way out and they don't really hew to the rules of politics. They can be seen as being not serious. I think Delgado risks that.
0: Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Charton. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Employees of the former St. Clair's Hospital in Schenectady have been fighting for years to get their pensions back. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports New York Attorney General Tish James was in Schenectady this week updating the pensioners.
4: James, a Democrat, announced the lawsuit on behalf of 1,100 former St. Clair's Hospital employees who lost some or part of their pensions after the hospital merged with Ellis Hospital and the 60-year-old pension fund was terminated in 2019.
2: 650 retirees who lost all pension rights, and 450 retirees who received only a single payment equal to 70% of the value of their pension.
4: The fund had been decimated in the 2008 recession. New York State did pay St. Clair's $58 million to cover transition costs, including $28.5 million to cover the pension fund's anticipated needs. A move to drop federal pension insurance protection in the 1990s doomed the fund. St. Clair's Pensioners Committee Chair, Mary Hartshorn, says the group includes retired nurses, lab technicians, social workers, EMTs, orderlies, and housekeepers.
2: When you worked at St. Clair's Hospital, you were there with friends and family because everybody became family. So when we were told each year that we had to give up our raise in order for these people to not be laid off, we did it, because we were told we had a pension, and that would make up for it. Never did we think that we were going to lose it in such an abrupt and inhuman way. The pensioners are suffering terribly. They're such a great group. They don't complain. But it's very difficult we've lost homes we've lost careers and now we're going through we had gone through a pandemic and now in a terrible inflation
4: james noted that on average pensioners worked between 10 and 50 years and they trusted that their employer st Clair's hospital and the catholic diocese would care for them In return.
2: Instead, the diocese would intentionally break and ignore the law and the process, deny them their hard earning savings that they were depending on uh, during their late years in life. These New Yorkers deserve justice. And more importantly, they deserve the money that they are owed and they rightfully worked for. In this lawsuit, we outline years of negligence by the diocese, the St. Clair's Corporation, and other leaders of the church, which violated multiple state laws. And they include violation — violating their fiduciary and their legal responsibilities to the St. Clair's Corporation, the entity tasked with managing the hospital and pension. They are responsible for removing the pension plan from the protections available under federal law, known as ERISA, which stands for the Employees' Retirement Income Security Act.
4: James argues that the diocese's breaches in fiduciary duty led to its failure to properly administer the pension that was entrusted to their care. Defendants named in the $55 million lawsuit filed in the New York State Supreme Court of Schenectady County include the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany, the St. Clair's Corporation, Bishop Emeritus Howard Hubbard, and Bishop Edward Scharfenberger. James says she's seeking full restitution, holding the defendants accountable for all debts owed to parishioners. The diocese issued a statement which says in part... We are sympathetic to the plight of the St. Clair's pensioners and want to see these hardships resolved as soon as possible. We respectfully disagree with the Attorney General's decision to file this lawsuit. The Diocese also claims James' suit will lead to more protracted proceedings which will further delay resolution of the case. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The first Starbucks
0: location in the Capital Region has elected to unionize, and workers at other stores in the region hope to follow suit. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports.
5: On Tuesday, Starbucks workers at Latham Plaza voted 8-6 to six in favor of unionization.
6: I think we're all pretty excited about the outcome.
5: James Shank is a shift supervisor at the store off Troy Schenectady Road. It's the first store in the capital region to organize as part of a movement that began late last year when workers in Buffalo became the first Starbucks employees in the country to unionize.
6: There would be no Starbucks without the partners, Um, and so we want to be compensated adequately and fairly to reflect that success, but also... Um, We can't do our best without having the financial stability that we need to have comfortable lives at home. And I don't mean comfortable and lavish. I mean comfortable in knowing that food is secured for that week, knowing that I have my rent paid, things of that nature.
5: Organized through Workers United, the Latham Plaza store partners will now pursue a contract. Weeks after the Latham Plaza workers filed petitions with the National Labor Relations Board, employees at the Starbucks store in Stuyvesant Plaza in Albany did the same. A union vote there is set for June. Meantime, employees in Malta on Monday filed organizing petitions with the NLRB. Abaya Ava works there.
3: It used to be an environment where you could really make a friend and a really good connection with somebody who would come in for their daily cup of coffee and unfortunately it's gone the route of literally just numbers.
5: Ava worked at the Starbucks on Broadway in downtown Saratoga Springs for about a year before the location closed in November. Since then he's worked at the Malta location, transferring along with a handful of other employees.
3: We were given the option of either transferring to another location or taking a severance and finding finding new work. Um, and it's just, it's so sad because like we literally had partners there who had given 11 years of their life.
5: Office said the Malta store has seen an increase in traffic and longer wait times. He expects that to get worse as the summer season kicks into gear.
4: With Saratoga being closed,
3: we are going to start seeing, I mean, we are starting to see more track business because Saratoga is not there to take that from Malta.
5: Meantime, Shank in Latham says he couldn't be happier that other stores are organizing.
3: Honestly,
6: um, you know, I view that as just as much of a success as our own store.
5: WAMC has reached out to Starbucks for comment. In an email last week, a statement from a spokesperson for the coffee giant says, quote, we are listening and learning from the partners in these stores, As we always do across the country, from the beginning we've been clear in our belief that we are better together as partners without a union between us, and that conviction has not changed. We respect our partners' right to organize and are committed to following the NLRB process."
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The town of Keene in Essex County, New York, is one of the prime gateways for hikers in the Adirondack High Peaks. The 156 square mile town includes 15 of the Adirondack High Peaks, including the state's highest, Mount Marcy. The area's tourism popularity has been growing and creating challenges as more people travel to the region for outdoor recreation. Town of Keene Supervisor Joe Pete Wilson spoke this week with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley about critical partnerships with the state and other agencies.
7: The past four or five years, we've been experiencing a real increase in the number of hikers visiting the high peaks, and Keene is the home of the high peaks. So all the issues around... Where do people park? Where do they find? How do they find trailheads? Where do they go to the bathroom? Uh, you know, mundane stuff like that. But when it's high numbers, it really has an impact. And so we're trying to plan for roadside safety you know not having lots of cars parked on the highway people crossing the street it gets really dangerous Uh, so with the, the DC the town of Keene Department of Transportation the past few years we've been working to manage the roadside safety issues in a real concrete way to limit the unsafe parking keep the safe parking open, adding shuttles to to move people so that they don't have to park on the side of the road, and at the same time doing a lot with education, trying to reach hikers as they plan their hike so they have alternatives in mind if their first choice is parked up. Having front country stewards out along the highway in busy parking lots to help Uh, direct people to places where there's parking available so that they don't feel compelled to just illegally park in someone's driveway. Uh, And at the same time, we're trying to make sure we're providing a safe, enjoyable experience for visitors who come here because part of this influx is novice hikers, people new to hiking, and we want them to have a good, safe experience.
2: What is the population of Keene and your town budget?
7: We're a Big town geographically, but our population is, as, uh, from the last cen- census, 1,140 people. So our total general fund budget is $1,250,000. And the main roads running through our town is route, State Route 73, so we don't have authority over the, the highway. Over 70% of the land in the town of Keene is state land, so we don't have authority over that. The town is has a a small footprint, but we work with the big state partners, DC, DOT. That's the only way we can get things done is to, you know, have good partnerships with the state agencies that manage our road, manage our, our state land. And, you know, over the past few years, we've really worked closely with DEC and DOT to take some immediate short-term steps while we plan for bigger, longer steps. Cause the town of Keene just can't do it on our
2: own. Joe Pete Wilson, you mentioned there's a lot of tourists that have been coming through the pandemic and you're getting more and more coming through now. How are the roads for getting into the town of Keene and staying in the town?
7: Well, we're on State Route 73 and there's big construction projects on both sides of us and they're great projects that are really needed the growing pains this summer are going to be tough in the long term when they're done it's great it's really going to make the roadside safer for bicyclists you know the state is really investing in that in this and we're appreciative that our local roads don't serve a lot of the hiking the hiking is mostly off state and county roads Um, but the big project on 73 is huge it's going to be growing pains this summer but in the long run it's it's
2: going to be wonderful Democrat Joe Pete Wilson is serving his second four-year term as Keene's supervisor. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gostina. Indigenous languages were largely eradicated as generations of Native American children were forced to attend more than 400 boarding schools that operated in the 19th and 20th centuries. The Legislative Gazette's Noel Evans from WXXI reports some Seneca people have been working to revitalize their language over the past 100 years.
8: We're in the basement of the Seneca Nation office on the Tonawanda Territory in Western New York. 22-year-old Jaden Parker stands at his desk. He's reading the words of a springtime ceremony for the maple trees. It's written on a whiteboard at the front of a small classroom. His task is to preserve the language, in part by transcribing recordings of native speakers.
6: It's the language that, uh, in our belief, that our creator gave to us. So it does come with a feeling of pride, too, to be able to speak that language um, that our that our elders and our ancestors spoke before us.
8: This is a matter of life and death for the Seneca language and every aspect of the culture and traditions linked to it. The language is at risk of extinction. According to the Endangered Languages Project, there are fewer than 50 native Seneca speakers.
6: We were told that this was gonna happen at one point.
8: So there's a prophecy that the language would be lost?
6: Oh yeah, yes.
8: That's Wayne Abrams, Parker's teacher. He says one of the school's major influences is the late Chief Corbett Sundown, who led the Tonawanda Seneca community from the 1930s until the early 90s. Many of Sundown's speeches were recorded. Today, those recordings and their transcripts are resources for classes. He was one of the last fluent speakers of Seneca. He worked with a specialist to preserve the language, which was controversial at the time.
6: He kind of got criticized for working with that linguist because of what he does to our language. He really breaks it apart and applies rules to it, and it kind of takes away from, you know, the specialness of the language a lot of times.
8: Abrams says one of Sundown's reasons was personal.
6: He's recording all these things, he says, because what he thinks is that when he dies, that there's going to be no one to speak at his funeral.
8: Without the Seneca language, funeral rites could go missing. Wedding ceremonies could be lost. Some ceremonies have already disappeared. And the Seneca language is not alone in this. According to the online language encyclopedia Ethnologue, there are 164 dying languages in the U.S. alone. Experts with the Indigenous Language Institute say there used to be more than 300 indigenous languages here. At Tonawanda, the fight to preserve Seneca looks a lot like a first grade class. And the college seminar. Jamie Jacobs used to be the school director here. He says Seneca is complex, but to put it simply, there are two distinct ways of speaking, conversationally and philosophically. Take the word home, for instance.
6: We can just say, you know, which just means my standing house. But we have a very complex way of saying my home. They will get an ego
8: Literally, that means it bites on my mind.
6: So I guess that re- refers to the effect of like being homesick or being away from home and something just pulling you back home.
8: Learning the intricacies of the language has been reshaping Jacob's world view. It was how he and his great grandmother used to connect. Sometimes, she would translate recordings of his great-great-grandfather singing. But there are at least two generations in his family who do not speak Seneca. It's partly a result of Indian boarding schools that Native American children were compelled to attend. From the early 1800s through the late 1960s, according to the Department of the Interior, there, students were abused and beaten for speaking their native language. Their hair cut, their identities largely erased.
6: I do remember my great grandmother telling stories because her brothers and sisters were sent to boarding school. You know, they were sent to the Thomas Indian School. So that cut off, you know, this, you know, holistic way of handing down language.
8: Jacobs says Seneca is a dynamic language, and for Jacobs, with every new word he learns. There is a deepening sense of connection to himself, to his community, his ancestors. There's continuity with a way of life that was taken away from him and others. And perhaps there's a greater sense of belonging, knowing you have a place in the world. And that's something that can be shared with anyone.
6: I think that if more people just understood our language, you know, even just have a general sense of how it works and how we think well, then I think more people would be more open and fascinated to learn about who we are.
8: In Rochester, I'm Noelle Evans,
0: that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2221. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.